You're listening to the sermon cast of First Presbyterian Church Spartanburg. To watch the full video of this worship service and to learn more about the ministries of our church, visit us online at fpcspartanburg.org. We hope you enjoy the message. Today we are continuing our Lenten walk towards Holy Week, towards the cross, eventually arriving at that empty tomb. Each week on that journey here at First Pres, we are exploring this question, why Jesus? We're looking at different aspects of who Jesus was, perhaps aspects that we haven't necessarily considered before. Last week, we explored what it means for Jesus to have been a vagabond, to be this person, this teacher, this God, always on his feet, moving from one place to the next. This week, we are sitting with a different characteristic of Jesus, one that perhaps many of us are more familiar with, this idea of Jesus as peacemaker. Except today, uh, in the scripture that we'll turn to here in just a moment, I think we're going to be challenged to think a little bit more broadly about what does it mean to follow a peacemaker, at least the peacemaker who we meet in Jesus. So let us turn our attention now to the scriptures. We're in the 10th chapter of Matthew's gospel. Jesus has gathered his uh, disciples around and he's preparing to send them out to do ministry on their own. And first he wants to give them some instructions Uh, If this is a pep talk, it's maybe a a more difficult pep talk than most of us would like to hear before we go out to do ministry. And case in point is right here in chapter 10, verse 34, where Jesus speaks about the kind of peace that he is after. Let us listen now for a word from God, beginning with verse 34 of Matthew chapter 10. Jesus speaks saying, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but the sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me, Jesus says, is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For those who find their life, Jesus says, will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Friends, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, in our unsettledness of this day, and the weight of worry that many of us are carrying into this space, and the anxiety that is lingering from a hard week past or a hard week to come, and the ways that these words turn things in us that we did not expect, God, we pray for your spirit of peace to fill us and to fill this space. Indeed, O God, we pray that through your spirit, you would take the words of my mouth and the unsettledness of our own hearts and that somehow you would knit them together and use them for your glory. For you and you alone, O God, are our rock 
and our Redeemer. Amen. So many of you were here this past Wednesday when Will Willimon was standing uh, right where I'm standing. Will is a professor at Duke Divinity School, a prolific author, a preacher, a bishop in the United Methodist Church. He was here teaching on Wednesday night on the topic of Jesus, the most interesting man in the world. And there was this story that he told early on that stuck with me. He talked about how he was driving down that day from Durham to Spartanburg, and he passed a a big billboard uh, somewhere near Gaffney, maybe underneath the giant peach. And the billboard says, Jesus, the answer to all of your problems. And Will said, you know, I got to thinking as I drove past that billboard, wouldn't it be more appropriate to actually put a billboard up that says, Jesus, the cause of nearly all your problems. And to understand what he means by that, you need look no further than Matthew chapter 10. You think I've come to bring peace, Jesus says? No. I've come to bring the sword. I've come to unsettle families, to set family member against family member. Is there anything or anyone that you love more than me? Oh, there is? Well, then guess what? You're not worthy of me. I mean, these verses should hit us square between the eyes, shouldn't they? I mean, they should rock us a little bit. Because here, Jesus is once again upturning our preconceived notions. Did you have a notion, Jesus seems to be saying, that peace somehow means an absence of conflict? That the peace I have come to bring means an absence of conflict? Well, guess again. In fact, Jesus says, if you really want to follow me, then you better buckle up because pretty soon you're going to be climbing up the Mount Everest of conflict. Everything about me in the ministry to which I am calling you is going to turn your life, your nation, and your world upside down. Now, it's important that we make a distinction here early on. While Jesus is making clear that peacemaking does not necessarily denote an absence of conflict, Jesus is very clear that peacemaking does denote an absence of violence. So Jesus, no matter where you look, abhors violence. There's really just no way to get around it. Earlier on in uh, Matthew's gospel, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Uh, Jesus says to the disciples and to the crowd that's gathered there, if someone strikes you on your cheek, what should you do? Give them the other cheek. You've heard it said that uh, you should love your neighbor and uh, hate your enemy, but truly I tell you, you should love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. There's an event later on in Jesus' life, right near the end, when uh, the Roman soldiers come to arrest him. And uh, Peter, being Peter, pulls out a sword and he slices off one of the Roman soldier's ears. This is a real story. Y'all should go look it up. It's a fun one. What does Jesus say to Peter, though? Peter says, "Uh uh-uh. That's not what we're doing. Put the sword away. Even from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even at the point of death. Jesus refuses to use violence to save himself. P 
Peacemaking does not necessarily mean for Jesus an absence of conflict, but it absolutely means an absence of violence. No matter where you look, people are always acting violently towards Jesus, but Jesus never, not once, returns an act of violence perpetrated against him by being violent in return. For Jesus, peacefulness in the manner of nonviolence is the way of God. So how do we square that Jesus, the nonviolent one, with this Jesus of Matthew chapter 10? This Jesus who speaks to all of us, I have not come to bring peace but the sword. This Jesus who frankly tends to cause us more problems than give us answers. Right? How do we as disciples, answer Jesus' call for us to live peaceful lives when Jesus himself seems dead set on disrupting our own peace. I think to get close to an answer on that, we have to first look a little bit deeper at the world in which Jesus was living. Who holds all the power in Jesus' world? This isn't a trick question. Who? Rome. Absolutely. The Romans are all Powerful. And the rich irony of it is when Jesus lives, it's a pretty darn peaceful time. Right? Stock market's up. People are catching fish, sinking boats. Unemployment's down. Folks can go more or less worship whoever they want to freely without trouble. Uh, there's a term actually for this period of history called the Pax Romana. This is about a 200, 300, depending on what historian you talk to, span of time that Jesus' life and ministry is smack dab in the middle of. Pax Romana means what? Roman peace, right? This was one of the first times in world history where the world was actually kind of peaceful. Yeah, I mean, there was a rebellion here and there and whatnot, you know, Peter with a sword. But for the most part, there were no nations that were just going at it, just murdering each other right and left. Things were pretty peaceful. But Jesus seems to want to lift up for us that the kind of peace that the Romans are instilling, it's not true peace. It's a false kind of peace. Because how do the Romans instill peace? How do they keep peace? Power. Violence. Burdensome taxes. Humiliation, right? The cross, which we'll get to on Good Friday, the cross is not just an instrument of death. It is an instrument of humiliation. It's the Romans putting people up there saying, look how worthless your life is. Look how easily we can snuff you out. Jesus comes saying, I am not here to bring a false peace. Jesus comes saying that the gospel he is proclaiming is one that seeks to teach us all what true peace looks like. And true peace, according to Jesus, is never achieved through strength or coercion or shame. That's the false peace. And Jesus has come to what? Bring a sword to the false peace. The true peace that Jesus comes teaching the true peace that the gospel proclaims is the kind of peace that can only be achieved through self-emptying, cheek-turning, enemy-forgiving kind of love. Let me give you an example. There is 
uh, a moment in April, late April, I think, 2020, when uh, after church, it was a Sunday, I found myself reading an article in the New York Times about a young man who had been uh, killed under really suspicious circumstances. This article was saying that the family of this young man and some of the friends and neighbors had been ringing the bell, but the authorities weren't listening. This young man had been running in a neighborhood where most people don't look like him. The thing that caught me, my attention rather about this article was that uh, this young man died about four miles as the crow flies from where I was sitting reading it. It was in my own community. I sent the article uh, that afternoon to three other clergy colleagues uh, in our community. I said, hey, have any of you uh, read or heard about this? And frankly, it's embarrassing that all four of us said we hadn't heard anything about this. The young man's name was Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, and his death was the first spark of many that ignited a national reckoning especially that summer of 2020, but a reckoning and a conversation that continues to this day around issues of race and reconciliation in our nation. I remember about two weeks after uh, reading that article, uh, the video uh, of his death was leaked uh, and all hell broke loose. I got called into a meeting uh, the night that that video was released with community leaders uh, representing all corners of that community. There were uh, church leaders, faith leaders, civic leaders, county commissioners, law enforcement. Uh, and there was a palpable fear in that room. We all felt it. Some of my colleagues who serve uh, historically black churches, they were getting calls from members of their church saying, oh, pastor, I don't know about this one. I mean, it was palpable. What was amazing about that night, though, was in that moment, that group of leaders, we didn't say this out loud, but looking back, this is what we did. We committed ourselves to peacemaking. We put a video out that night where all of us shared our own anger, our own sense of, disbelief that something as horrific as this event could happen in our community. But we spoke with a united voice saying we are all angry, but we can't let that anger translate into more violence. We have to find ways to channel that anger peacefully. Right? That's that first part of peacemaking for Jesus. But we were equally clear that we weren't going to stand idly by. That together as a community, we were going to take a sword to all those systems that perpetuated and held up that sense of false peace. So for the next year and a half, that group, we did press conferences on City Hall steps. We did prayer vigils on the courthouse lawn. Uh, the clergy, all the clergy of that community representing every spectrum of the theological spectrum and mainland, island, black, white, Jewish, Christian, 
We did racial reconciliation training together so that we might be better equipped to lead our congregations and our communities. Probably the crowning achievement for that group was that we worked with our state lawmakers to have a hate crime law passed in the state of Georgia. Georgia at the time was one of five states that did not have a hate crime law on the books. And frankly, we should all be a little bit embarrassed to say that South Carolina is one of two remaining states that doesn't have a hate crime law on the books. It was a remarkable experience where together, again, for a year and a half, we as leaders in churches and in business and in government, we sought to show others that we can work together for peaceful lives and simultaneously work for the full peace of others. Do you hear that? We can lead peaceful lives, embodying that nonviolence, while simultaneously working for the full peace of others. So where do we begin? Like literally, where do each of us, where do we as a community begin in this work of peacemaking? I don't think my answer is going to be terribly satisfying for you. Because my answer to that question is that where we need to begin is by telling the truth. And the truth of the matter is, is that peacemaking in the model of Jesus, the Christ, it is not easy. Peace itself is not easily attained. It's going to lead us outside of our comfort zones. Perhaps some of you here today already feel outside of your comfort zone. Good. That's called Holy Spirit. It's going to lead us to people and situations and places that we may not otherwise expect ourselves to be. I never expected myself to be on City Hall steps and on the courthouse lawn. But it's going to lead us to some of those places. Because what Jesus teaches us is that in order to achieve true peace, we first have to do the work of shedding those vestiges that fuel our false peace. It is only then that any of us will ever arrive at something even resembling true and lasting peace true and lasting life. We have to lose the false peace. We have to lose our lives before we can find the true peace, before we can find true life. I remember a year and a half after that meeting, I was on the lawn of the Glen County Courthouse with probably about 1,000 people And we were waiting for the verdict to be read in the trial of those who had been accused of the crime of murdering Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, It was the day before Thanksgiving, and we're all out there. And the verdict comes down guilty. And there are shouts and whoops and tears and elation. I remember I found myself, though, sidling up next to another clergy colleague who pastored a church in downtown Brunswick. I said, man, how are you feeling? He said, honestly, Alan, 
I feel really sad. I feel sad. And when he said that, I realized that I was feeling the same thing. Yes, justice had been done, but it was still so sad to me that the next day, three families were going to sit down around the table. The Arbery's, the McMichael's, and the Bryan's. And they were all going to be missing someone they loved at that table. Where do we begin? We begin now. Not tomorrow. We begin that work now. Because friends, the sad truth is that there is still so much work left to be done. When it comes to peacemaking, to finding that true and lasting peace, there is still so much work to be done. Will you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, you are the Prince of Peace. And yet we know that to fully realize that kind of peace, well, it's going to shake us up. It's going to shake loose some of those things that we have taken for granted, some of those things that we don't even see around us that give us the comfort and the peace that we enjoy. God, help us to join you in that work of leading peaceful lives, yes, but just as importantly in working for the full peace of all your children. Amen.